Literature is the art of discovering something extraordinary about ordinary people and saying with ordinary words, something extraordinary. Boris Pasternak, Russian poet, novelist, and literary translator. Welcome to Tea, Toast, and Trivia. Thank you for listening in. Why do specific narratives endure? Writers and readers come to these stories over and over again. Is it because the characters are memorable and compelling? Or is it the dialogue, action scenes, or unfolding love that engages? What transforms an ordinary storyline into an extraordinary critical success that attracts readers beyond the life of the writer? The answer, a strong literary theme. Today, I am thrilled that we are joining Porvu, Finland, Montclair, New Jersey, and Vancouver, Canada. Elizabeth and Dave has joined me in connecting three time zones within seconds to bring you a discussion on enduring literary themes. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hello, Rebecca. It's so nice to be back again. Thank you, and welcome, Dave. Hi, Rebecca. I agree. It's very nice to be here again. I am thrilled that you have joined me today. This is an overview question to start the conversation. Why do some themes live on forever and recur in every generation? Elizabeth, what do you think about that? Oh, I think that classical literature is, or not just classical literature, any kind of literature works best when there is a certain theme those themes were invented already by the ancient Greeks and Shakespeare, and they're repeated all through to our modern age. And I think there was one quote that has been attributed to Tolstoy, but it's not certain that he said it, that all great literature is one of two stories. A man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. And of course, that's the same story because when a man goes on the journey, he becomes the stranger who comes to town. And that's one that comes around a lot. You brought something up that's very interesting because if that's the case, a stranger comes to town or another person goes out on a journey. Dave, do you think that women had the possibility of going out on a journey or were they there just to stay? in the village, waiting for the stranger to come. Part of that is when the novel was written, certainly centuries ago, and more often had main part and did the traveling and the adventure and whatever. Fortunately, it's changed more recently, you know, where there are books where women are doing adventurous stuff. Of course, in, in older literature, there were always exceptions. One that comes to mind is Sir Walter Scott, The Heart of Midlothian, the main person in that book is a woman who goes on this journey from Scotland to London. There are some exceptions, but definitely more gender equality that I can see in literature these days. Elizabeth, when you think about that and what Davis said, when we change as a society, do the themes add our outlook to what society and what values that brings to us? I'm thinking of our discussion on Eugene Onegin. He brought something new to the discussion of society values, didn't he? Yes, and he was also very much the stranger coming to town. I think that the basic 
theme stays the same throughout the ages, but as time goes on, a different interpretation will be attributed to it, or a writer will interpret it differently than before, if that makes any sense. It does make sense, because in Eugene O'Yegan, the person that was the strongest was a female lead. Yes, she was not the stranger coming to town. She was, of course, living in the town, and Eugene came to her town. But I suppose in modern literature, she would be much more outgoing than she was in uh, Eugene O'Yegan. She was still defined by her surroundings, by her uh, femininity. And so she couldn't do whatever she wanted to do. She was not free in that sense. Not as free as a female protagonist nowadays would be. And speaking of adventures, which is where we're coming to, is Robin Hood. Well, there's an idea of justice and fairness and equalization. Dave, where do you see that theme occurring? The desire for a little more equality than actually exists. And that's a theme that goes back centuries. And any literature that deals with that or story where we get wish fulfillment, where that powerful kind of dealt with and equalized a little bit. And as often the case, I mean, Margaret Atwood, Barbara Kingsolver, various authors often deal with that kind of inequality and realism and so on. And that comes through with Turgenev. He was very much for the serfs and he saw and had compassion for them and wrote about that, didn't he? Yes, he definitely did. Turgenev wrote this famous work called The Hunter's Sketches, or A Sportsman's Sketches, depending on the translation that you have, in which he, he wrote for the first time, actually, in, in Russian literature, about people who were not belonging to the aristocracy or any well-to-do families, but ordinary serfs and peasants. And uh, he did a great deal for the emancipation of serfdom with his book. So the idea of adventure, equality all comes together. And then in all of this, we look at love and how love brings in the idea of equality and how people felt as we moved from the Victorian period to our current existence. Dave, why is Pride and Prejudice so popular? Finding love is a major, major theme. I guess having an initial situation where people are not kind of hitting it off uh, and then gradually it kind of works, that's also a very popular theme. In Jane Austen, her, her women were very smart and lively and determined and they were kind of equals to the men. I, I think uh, for those various reasons and more, Jane Austen is just very appealing. There are many romances over the years, something like Cinderella, and all of a sudden there's a white horse and somebody's going to rescue that poor little waif. Why do you think that has become such a strong theme throughout literature? And I think, Elizabeth, you spoke of that in Eugene Onegin. Eugene Onegin pointed out that this woman was rescued by somebody that was very, very powerful. How did that fit into that theme? It's again also a little bit uh, the rich versus the poor theme. and But I think that uh, there's also this dream probably that a lot of poor people have that one day this will change and that the prince on the white horse will come and rescue them and then they will be rich and the lady of the castle and all that. We're talking about economics and the Pride and Prejudice theme 
Why do you think economics is so important in writing? Well, certainly in Pride and Prejudice, the parents in that book wanted to marry off their daughters so to kind of ensure their economic you know, future. That was a crucial thing, gravitate towards their economic equals, uh, their class equals. There's this wonderful of people um, bridging that gap. Economics can't, cannot be understated. And then hopefully love was an added bonus. Do you find that as well in Russian literature, Elizabeth? Yes, in 19th century uh, Russian literature, this was very much the case. Most marriages were made from a, a financial uh, point of view and not from a romantic point of view. So if you had, if you were from a good family but without any money because your ancestor had gambled, had gambled it all away, then it was very important to find this rich heiress who could put the family back on the map again, and the other way around. So that was very much the main motive for a marriage in the 19th century. Well, it seems that marriage plays an important part in the stories that we have talked about, which leads us to another thought on how a community and how a family influences life within the love triangle. I'm thinking about Romeo and Juliet. Dave, do you see that coming in literature Certainly, Romeo and Juliet is a great example where the family of Romeo and the family of Juliet are kind of warring factions, uh, families that have been kind of at odds with each other, and then their children fall in love. And there's definitely many instances in literature where the family tries to influence the romantic futures of their of their children. It's really unfair, really, um, but it's often the case. Uh, there are a lot of obstacles for, for couples in a lot of uh, novels because of their families. Well, you just read Lorna Doon. Here's a good example. Lorna Doon, the, the male protagonist, is uh, from kind of a farming family. He's very wealthy. And Lorna is from a family that had wealth in her background. She's also living with a family that is a criminal family at, at that time. The male protagonist, his family feels that uh, Lorna might be too above his station. On the Lorna side, uh, they feel that male protagonist is just like kind of a country bumpkin or something, which he's not. He's, he's actually a very smart, decent person. We've come from adventure to romance to tragedy and community, and now we are going to good versus evil. I can just imagine all of the wonderful books you both have read about good versus evil, death and immortality, gain and loss, and absolute power. Elizabeth, I was thinking of Boris Pasternak and Dr. Shivago. I know it's a love story, but it's also good versus evil in many ways, isn't it? Oh, it definitely is, yeah. Although in 20th century Russian literature, you could say that the, the evil is not so much a person, it's, it's often the state that is the evil that the people are struggling with. And I think that in in, uh, so in in 20th century Russian literature, that's usually the case. I just read One Day in the Life of Ivan Deninovich. I can't say it. Could you say it for me? Denisovich. Ivan Denisovich. Denisovich. Dave and you have challenged me to read books that I would never think of reading. Well, that was the one that I didn't think of reading. What was so powerful about that book? It's the struggle of one man against the system. 
a very recognizable theme, but at the same time, it's one that, that we all hope as little individuals that we will never encounter. It's a small man against a big system. Dave, when you go against evil and the odds are against you, what theme comes through to help us accept that and still move on and challenge what is wrong? Well, definitely courage, desperation, things are so bad. What do you have to lose if you try to fight it? Something like uh, The Lord of the Rings. Basically, they were trying to save the world and, in effect, worth whatever risk or danger you go through to try to accomplish that. Also, good versus evil, it doesn't necessarily have to be evil necessarily. The good just has to have more maybe perseverance or cleverness. In The Lord of the Rings, the evil was really powerful, and some of the people fighting that were hobbits, these little people who didn't really have a lot of strength or power, but they had perseverance. Also, good versus evil literature is wish fulfillment, because in real life, uh, evil often wins. But in literature, once in a while, you get satisfaction of being good, and then uh, that you know, raised one's morale a little bit. Speaking of Lord of the Rings, and I see it in other books of this type, you conquer evil or some form of evil, but there's always loss. And how do you embrace that loss? Frodo said, we saved the world, but not for me. I think that came through the book that you recommended, Dave, All Quiet in the Western Front. Eric Maria Remark, who wrote that book uh, and many others, often there would be some, you know, the underdog would kind of win or you know, survive or whatever, but at a cost, depression, resignation, it's not like they just live happily ever after. And I mean, in the Lord of the Rings, like Frodo, he was kind of, you know, in a depressed state after, after all the events unfolded. And I don't think he ever married, very somber, whereas Samwise embraced life a little bit more afterwards. You have to expend that much uh, energy and, you know, it's hard to just be a, a, a normal, happy person after that. My last theme that I wanted to talk to you about is corruption. The corrupting power of unchecked ambition. The abuse of power. And I think of books like Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. The idea of Macbeth. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition. Elizabeth, how would you experience corruption in Russian literature? Russian literature, as you know by now, is very familiar with the corruption theme. I think that that is where Russian writers most often try to turn that into a tool that they use to make a difference in society, how society reflects certain things. And I think that that has been throughout 19th century and 20th century Russian literature has been very often the case, as you mentioned before, Turgenev writing about the serfs and their situation. It is the same in A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Many books are about this corruption. It gives the writer a tool to make a difference in society. Also, what I was writing now on my most recent blog post about uh, Chekhov, when he was on Sakhalin Island, where the prison guards are abusing the power that they have, and the authorities are just not either ignorant or they don't want to know or looking away. 
What was that book called, Elizabeth? It was quite an interesting blog post that you wrote. It was quite extraordinary. Chekhov went to Sakhalin Island, which is an island on the east coast of Russia, in the far east, uh, that was used for prisons and also as a colony where they sent um, hardened criminals to better their lives, so to say, <laughs> which was, of course, it doesn't work. It's just dehumanizing and people do not come out of there any better than if they went in there. And nor do, of course, the authorities. Chekhov went there because he was also a doctor. He wanted to make a census of the prison population there. But actually, he used that kind of as an excuse to go there so that he could really talk to the people and to see for himself what it was like and to use also those experiences for his work. Writers do extraordinary things to get a story, and a story that makes a change in our society. Dave, could you explain that? In both The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments, which was the recent sequel, there is incredible amount of corruption. I mean, basically, there's a society where men have created this whole patriarchal system where women are second-class citizens, and they, they have very few rights. But at the same time, the people in power are getting the best food for themselves. They're skimming all kinds of things. They're just corrupt, not only in a misogynist way, but in an economic way. And then some of the women who are in charge of the women, even though they're under the rule of the men, some of those get corrupt too, like getting their little crumbs and the kind of a devastating indictment of human nature where in the guise of theocratic state, they're all just the... Um, a bunch of uh, crooks. As we close this conversation, I want to also consider how writers take enormous risk in writing these themes. These are not easy themes. They're not happily ever after stories. They are stories that talk to us, that challenge us. They're not easy reads. Dave, would you tell me how you think readers should embrace these types of books? I think readers should embrace them. You can always be entertained while being shown this kind of stuff, too. It's a very potent combination to find a book compelling, but also something that really makes you think and makes you look at the dark side of humanity. Unfortunately, with the constraints of the market, a lot of authors probably can't write a book like that for their first book. They they have to get their foot in the door, perhaps, quote-unquote, get away with uh, doing something much more intense, uh, like Margaret Atwood's first novel with this kind of funny although it had interesting themes too. and She didn't write The Handmaid's Tale until maybe her fifth or sixth novel, and she was established. And so uh, I, I wish it wasn't that way. I wish people could, you know, write these very serious, make-you-think books from the beginning, but sometimes they have to be famous first and have a little clout with their publisher. I believe that as we go along our reading journey, your blog, Elizabeth, A Russian Affair, helped me understand Russian literature in a much greater degree than if I had embraced it on my own. You helped me through the barriers of language, of society, of, of time. We like to read what we understand now, but going back is very difficult, or we don't understand a culture. But you helped me understand that through Togenev and Eugene Onegin and Chekhov. So thank you. Well, thank you for being so appreciative of what I've been doing on my blog. I think that 
what you are saying is very true. At first, there may be a barrier when you may think, oh, well, I'm not Russian and I'm not from the 19th century, so how relevant can this possibly be for me? It might be a long book and there might be difficult names. But the themes that we have talked about today, they're all Russian literature, and they're all very universal themes that have been recycled for centuries. And there is a reason for that. These universal things that appeal to every reader and that can mean something different to different readers throughout the world. But at the same time, everybody can find something in there that still appeals to them now in this world. And that is what makes these themes so powerful, and that's why they have been around for so long, in my opinion, anyway. Dave, would you like to add to that? I totally agree with what Elizabeth said. Human actions don't really change from 2021 back to you know, 1866 when crime and punishment was written. Cultural norms change and technology, but uh, humans are, are basically humans. Elizabeth and Dave, one thing that I want to mention to listeners is that conversations about books are very, very important. And both of your blogs are an experience in reading. When I visit them, you welcome me and you welcome other visitors to engage in a life-affirming conversation. Your thoughtful responses and your ideas that come through the blog posts help us to look at a different way of reading and explore new horizons. I want to thank you both for that. And when you come together, it is such a pleasure to hear your ideas and your thoughts and your insights. You have a gift of bringing books to life. And I want to thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Your podcasts and your blogs do the same thing uh, with art and many other topics. Your guests are just so intelligent. The conversation is just so interesting. So thank you. Well, I would like to second what Dave just said, that it's true you, with your podcast, you're raising a lot of very interesting and fascinating discussions with a wide variety of people. And while I'm listening to your podcast, while I'm out walking and uh, transporting me <laughs> through Scot to Scotland or wherever you are, at, <laughs> which I absolutely love. So thank you. Well, I have to tell you, I sit up at night thinking about questions because I know I'm going to be meeting with giants like yourself and I want to make sure that I am prepared. One person said to me, an answer is great, but you need to have the right question. And I think that is another aspect of books. They give us the questions, the what ifs, and that is what is so important about books. I want to thank you both for coming. You have inspired me today. I say that with reverence and enthusiasm. Thank you for joining Elizabeth, Dave, and me on Tea, Toast, and Trivia. And a very special thank you, Elizabeth and Dave, for adding your insights on enduring themes of literature. This has been another exciting conversation. And listeners, you can connect with Elizabeth on A Russian Affair, and you can connect with Dave on Dave Astor on Literature. And trust me, there is always an adventure in reading waiting 
for your arrival on Elizabeth and Dave's blogs. Till next time we meet, dear friends, keep safe and be well.